there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's fact, when you go too fast, you turn into lizards. <laughs> I didn't understand that when we recorded the last one, but I do now. <laughs> We're doing a Star Trek episode. <laughs> We're just going to talk about a bunch of Star Treks. <laughs> I've compiled my top 10 list of weird Star Trek episodes and then inflicted it on other people. So, like, personally, I was a kid when Next Gen was airing. I don't, like, remember watching a lot of Next Gen on the regular just enough that the tiny child version of me looked at the TV, pointed at Worf, and said, That one! <laughs> <laughs> I watched, like, maybe a small smattering of Voyager, but never enough to actually form any kind of cohesive thought pattern about it. And then, like, years later, John and I watched about half a Deep Space Nine before Jedzia left and Dax got a new host. Well, Jedzia does the thing at the end of season six. So I think you watched most of DS9. I guess it was while Jedzia and Worf were an item. I remember that. I apparently just sort of catalog my Star Trek experiences around Worf. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Before this, I had watched exactly one episode of Star Trek the original series, and that was the Ponfar episode where Spock gets horny. <laughs> that's on the list. <laughs> so that's weird. That's my Star Trek experience. Mackenzie, how much of this have you watched, like, in general? I would not say I have watched a lot of it actively, but my dad was a huge Star Trek fan. So anytime it was on TV, he had it playing. And then he also bought, like, anytime a DVD set or a VHS set would come out, he would buy it. It was kind of like Dad's background noise, so he was constantly playing original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine. He was literally playing all of it, constantly, in the background. So you just sort of picked up a lot of this through osmosis, huh? Yeah, I kind of picked it up through osmosis. I never really actively watched it. Like, there were days where I would just be kind of talking to my dad, and I remember I'd lie on the couch, covered with a blanket, idly watching the television and just chatting with him about whatever was going on. And there was a time where I knew all the characters just by association, and now I could not pick out anybody but Riker, if you put a gun to my head. <laughs> I watched none of these folks. They're explaining them to me. I mean, this is not our first brush with Star Trek on this particular program. If you go back a ways, we did, in fact, once watch Save, Save the, the Whales. Whales, which is a great film that I love. And then we also just talked about the concept of Riker in general way, way back in the early days. It's our second episode, isn't it? I think so. It's like in the first five or something, I swear. Be warned about that. I did also once buy a Riker action figure at a festival. <laughs> oh, yeah, at the Covered Bridge Festival. He was in a pile of porno magazines. That tracks. It was like a bunch of porno mags and like a handful of miscellaneous next-gen action figures. And I got Riker. And now, meanwhile, Star Trek is just your particular shit, huh, Kit? All Star Trek, every Star Trek, since I was a very small child, my mom watched the original series while it was still airing. I went into greater detail on the Star Trek 4 episode, but sufficient to say I live in Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> So you're our guide here on these episodes of Weird Star Trek. Yeah, and I have the backstory for this particular list as well. Before I moved from Canada to the UK, I was working at a place where I was working with a guy named Kyle. And Kyle got into a conversation with me and a bunch of the other Trek fans in the office. He had never seen any Star Trek. He's like, if I'm going to watch Star Trek, I would like to only watch the weird and bad episodes of Star Trek. And so a bunch of us put our heads together and came up with a list that was 65 episodes long. 
Uh, <laughs> we watched all of them, and as we were going through them, Kyle would give them a rating of weirdness from 1 to 10. So the list I'm about to present to you is scraped from the 8s, 9s, and 10s from his list. I just, this list is presented in four honorable mentions and then a top 10 counting down to the weirdest one. And I have some personal disagreements about some of these. I will say now expressing an opinion on Star Trek is a great way to incite slap fights online. So before we get into it, I just want to say this list is organized according to my personal opinion, which is objectively correct. Don't at me. Just generally don't at us unless you also want to talk about stupid episodes that you love. That means you, Sims. (laughs) Yeah, real quick. Hello, my gaming group, except Jordan, who also doesn't watch a whole lot of Star Trek. Yes, I did finally watch the episode where Bev Crusher has sex with a ghost. You're welcome. So you are our guide here, Kit. Where do we start? Okay, so I want to start with my first honorable mention. You guys are my guides. I am blind. You are leading me. If you ever need me to explain anything Star Trek-ish to you, like if I take for granted that you know something and you don't know it, stop me and I will explain it to you in excruciating detail. You got it. I'll try to give you the layman's terms of what the fuck I saw, Mackenzie. (laughs) got it. (laughs) All right, so my first honorable mention is Amok Time, which was an original series episode. First episode of season two written by Theodore Sturgeon. So this is one that uh, (laughs) has gained a level of infamy over the years. In terms of the episode plot, we learn that Spock has sort of been off his feed for the last two days to the point where like Nurse Chapel, who has like a huge crush on Spock, tries to bring him some homemade soup and he responds by screaming at her and throwing the soup across the hall. (laughs) That's a lot for Spock, right? He's usually fairly reserved. Yeah, Spock's whole deal is he was actually a lot more emotional in the original like the cage pilot. But then the, as sort of when they brought Kirk on to be captain, William Shatner was such a, let's say, passionate actor that to contrast against him, Leonard Nimoy's performance became a lot more reserved as a result. So Spock is not an emotional character. Vulcans in general aren't emotional. And Spock in particular is locked down so hard he's got several issues as a result of it. So the soup doesn't go well. The soup doesn't go over well. Spock then requests that the Enterprise diverse to Vulcan. Kirk can't do that unless Spock explains why. And this goes back and forth for like the next 20 minutes of episode Uh, (laughs) before McCoy the ship's doctor finally gets a chance to examine Spock and finds out that Spock is dying (laughs) why is Spock dying? (laughs) Spock has the pawn far basically every seven years after hitting adulthood it's f*** or die Friday what? (laughs) and Vulcans become rage fuel f*** monsters and they have to bone or they die Hold the phone. And this is explained via the most awkward conversation between Kirk and Spock you will ever see. (laughs) Okay, I knew that, like, Vulcans had some kind of weird, like, once every seven years horny time, but I didn't realize it involved if I don't have sex, I will die. He will literally die if he doesn't fuck. Fuck yeah. It's fuck or die Friday. (laughs) And there's this great conversation where they go over it, where, like, Spock is hideously embarrassed about it, so of course he's like, it has to do with biology. And Kirk is like, the biology is in the biology of Vulcans? And Spock is like, yes. And Kirk is like, biology is in reproduction? (laughs) 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 This is an incredibly long scene. (laughs) Anyway, Kirk is like, oh shit, and he immediately diverts the ship to Vulcan so Spock can get some. (laughs) And this is the opener of season two. This is the opener of season two. 
<laughs> people who enjoyed the first season of this fun new show called Star Trek came back for the second season. This is the first thing they saw. <laughs> Everyone's tuning in to watch Spock have an awkward talk about being horny. Yes. So they get to Vulcan and we meet Dupring, who's Spock's fiance slash wife. It's more than a fiance, but less than a wife sort of situation. So like they're kind of like promised to each other? Yeah, they've been promised to each other since they were like kids. However, Tupring brought her side piece to the wedding. <laughs> and she says, I don't want to marry Spock. And the only way to, to resolve this is with a ritual combat challenge. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. In some sort of quarry, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> so Spock has to fight T'Pring's champion for possession of T'Pring, and as her champion, T'Pring does not pick her side piece. T'Pring picks Kirk. <laughs> Why? She explains it later, but her basic idea is that, okay, so she picks Kirk. Spock kills Kirk. Spock is now devastated and doesn't want T'Pring anymore. Kirk kills Spock. Kirk doesn't want T'Pring, and T'Pring can marry her side piece. It's win-win for her. <laughs> also, she doesn't want her side piece getting hurt. Her side piece, by the guy, is a guy named Ston, who is the most, like, plain-looking dude I've ever seen. He's like dollar store Spock. <laughs> anyway, Kirk is like, oh man, free wife. Uh... <laughs> Or possibly he looks at the side piece and like, I don't want Spock fighting that guy. Kirk does not know it's a fight to the death until after he's accepted because he's an idiot. Please rise for the national anthem. Uh-oh. Let Klaubloch begin! <laughs> anyway, Kirk and Spock fight. Kirk gets bodied. <laughs> Kirk gets fucking destroyed. <laughs> like, Spock the scientist. Spock the scientist is three times the strength of a human. And also they're on a planet with a very low oxygen content in the atmosphere. Kirk can't breathe. So during this time out, McCoy, who also came to the wedding, and he was like, hmm, I'm going to my friend's wedding. I better pack tranquilizers. Hmm. McCoy gives Kirk an injection that's supposed to help him win, like to help counteract the lack of oxygen. It doesn't... <laughs> Spock and Kirk then proceed to writhe around on the sand for an inordinate amount of time together until Spock chokes Kirk out and then Spock snaps out of Pon Far and is convinced he's killed Kirk. To be clear, what we were presented with was... Was it fuck or die? Spock has to either fuck or die and he did neither. He writhed around with Kirk on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's alive. And then kill his captain which probably means he has to go turn himself in now yes he's entirely like i have to go turn myself in for murder now <laughs> did spock's body consider the writhing on the ground with kirk f***ing that appears to be what happened i will point out that theodore sturgeon the guy who wrote this episode is by many accounts more than a bit bisexual <laughs> i approve i can't believe that anyone would think that kirk and spock should kiss <laughs> I can't believe that there would be an entire fandom built around this. How shocking. Spock's fine now and he decides he doesn't want to marry Tupring either. And he goes back, he's like, I gotta go turn myself in for murder now. And then <laughs> Kirk's fine though, Kirk was just sleeping. <laughs> so they didn't plan to fake his death. No, but that shot that McCoy gave him was actually a tranquilizer. <laughs> so he just went to sleep. He just went to sleep. And Spock finds out that Kirk's alive. He spins him around, definitely almost kisses him. It's a whole thing. End of episode. <laughs> 
So this spawned not only the fuck or die trope, but also the entirety of Spock and Kirk fanfiction as a whole, as well as the entire concept of slash fanfiction. Can't imagine why. <laughs> I'm into it. What a mystery. Cannot imagine why. <laughs> They're just, what's the male version of gal pals? Dudes being bros. They're just dudes being bros. A sort of beta canon word in Vulcan for the relationship between Kirk and Spock. Spock refers to Adam as Tahila. Uh-huh. Tahila is a Vulcan word that means friend, brother, lover. Mm-hmm. And then Spock in the narrative goes out of his way to explain that in this case, lover doesn't apply. But like, right. that's a made up word. You didn't have to make it mean that third thing and then say it didn't apply. Good job, Spock. You did it. You threw them off the scent. So yeah, that's a muck time. Uh-huh. First episode of season two. Just a hit television show gets a second order. And what do they start out with right out of the gate? Die Friday. <laughs> I also want to point out that like all of the original series episodes that were on this list that I saw, unfortunately, on the American Netflix as it stands, it is John explained this to me at some point. They went back and they basically did like a Star Wars remaster of all of the exterior shots with the spaceship and like, on, yeah. uh, like out in space. And so they made a little CGI model. And I would like to call the people who made that decision cowards. <laughs> yeah, no, I wanted to see all the models. The models were actually pretty cutting edge for the time and still hold up. But it's also like, if you're not going to admit that what you have on your hands is an incredibly campy television program, then I don't know what you're doing here. Yeah, do you think they go back for uh, Thunderbirds and like Photoshop out all the marionette strings? They could have actually done that for all I know. They probably would have. If, <laughs> if there had been enough people interested in Thunderbirds, they would have gone back and edited out the marionette strings. Apparently there's a Thunderbirds remake on the air on British TV right now. Okay, look, I would buy that for the British. <laughs> it is CG, though. It's not Marionation, which sort of... Boo! It defeats the purpose for me. Boo! Anyway, move on. Tell me about this Bride of Chaotica shit. <laughs> okay, so Bride of Chaotica, which ends in an exclamation point. The exclamation point is very key for the formatting of the episode title as a whole. I feel I should point that out. And this is an episode of Voyager. We're skipping ahead a bit. These are not in airing order or chronological order, like, at all. <laughs> now, Voyager's, by many accounts, as I understand it, Voyager is the weird one. I will say that there's more Voyager on this list than anything else. Mm-hmm. Did notice that. It's more that Voyager is incredibly swingy. Every single Voyager episode is the wildest shit you've ever seen or aggressively mediocre. There is no in-between. <laughs> <laughs> it's either terrifically good or terrifically bad. There are no meh Voyager episodes. There's also no Deep Space Nine on this list, which is interesting because Deep Space Nine can have some like really good plots. But when Deep Space Nine does a weird episode, they go super weird in on it. The thing about the DS9 weird episodes is that they're also unwatchable. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> so anyway, Bride of Chaotica. This is uh, season five, episode 12 of Voyager, written by Brian Fuller and Michael Taylor. Yes, that Brian Fuller. What Brian Fuller? Brian Fuller, who's responsible for Pushing Daisies, Dead Like Me, NBC Hannibal, and the first season of Star Trek Discovery. Huh. And the first season of American Gods. That Brian Fuller. Huh. All right. Okay, so the background info for Voyager is that it's a ship from the Alpha Quadrant, which is where everybody else lives in Star Trek, that got yeeted into the Delta Quadrant, which is on the other side of the galaxy, and they're trying to make their way home. It's lost in space. It's lost in space. Don't worry about it. 
So the background info for this particular episode is that Tom Paris, who was Voyager's helmsman... It's another Tom Paris episode? All the weird ones are Tom Paris episodes. Tom Paris likes to LARP as Flash Gordon on the holodeck. (laughs) Yeah, that would track with what I've seen of this character in these, like, handful of episodes in this list that I've seen. He is big into 20th century stuff, and he likes to be Flash Gordon on the holodeck. He drags his friend Harry Kim, poor dumb Harry, into being his sidekick on the holodeck. How does he feel about the Orientalism? We're not getting into that. Mm. <laughs> there isn't much Orientalism in this particular episode, but we're just going to have to assume they had some very uncomfortable conversations at one point. <laughs> so this episode opens entirely in the style of an old Flash Gordon episode. It's in black and white. Ha! Huh. And it's got this highly inaccurate recap of the last quote-unquote episode, <laughs> which is the last episode of Flash Gordon, not the last episode of Voyager. <laughs> So this is a holodeck episode. This is a holodeck episode. Oh, boy. A lot of these are going to be holodeck episodes, I think. Oh, boy. So Tom and Harry, in their roles of Flash Gordon and sidekick, they crash land on Planet X and prepare to face off against the villainous Chaotica, ruler of the cosmos. I'm guessing it's a sexy lady. Uh, No, it's a dude. Ah. (laughs) It's a dude who, if they could have cast Vincent Price, they would have. (gasps) Ah. Yeah, they are exploring what looks suspiciously like the California desert. And then they come across a mysterious energy distortion, and they know this is not part of the program because it's in color. (laughs) Okay, that's wild. (laughs) So the holodeck controls go offline again. The holodeck controls spend more time offline than online. The holodeck is a death trap, and nobody should spend any amount of time in it, and yet. Which is why the Ferengi monetize it in Deep Space Nine. Yes, exactly. So Voyager has stopped dead for unknown reasons again. Uh (laughs) This happens a lot. And it turns out the ship has smacked into what is literally referred to as a subspace sandbar, which has knocked most of its systems offline. And they just say that like that's a thing? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The thing that happens in Voyager is someone will say an incredibly long technobabble thing, and then somebody else will explain what it is in layman's terms. They'll say, incredibly long technobabble, basically a subspace sandbar. (laughs) Right. (laughs) In the Futurama episode of Star Trek, they always just call it like a balloon and something bad happens. Yeah. So meanwhile, back on the holodeck, these two light-based aliens, they're called photonic aliens later in the episode, they travel through the energy distortion and take the form of a couple of guys in black suits and fedoras, and they think the Captain Proton hologram is real life. Mm. (laughs) And they attempt to initiate peaceful first contact with Chaotica, ruler of the cosmos. It goes badly. Oh my god. (laughs) So as the crew is attempting to un the ship. They find out that Chaotica's fortress on the holodeck is at war with invaders from the fifth dimension. That's literally what they call them. Oh my god. The photonic aliens not only think the Captain Proton program is real, but that the Voyager crew are the simulation since they don't register as life forms to the photonic aliens instruments. Because they're light based. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. The crew determines that they need to help the photonic aliens defeat Chaotica, at which point they'll close up their portals and leave. The practical upshot of this is that the captain, Captain Janeway, played by Kate Mulgrew, needs to LARP as Arachnia, Queen of the Spider People, to infiltrate Chaotica's fortress. What? She's not happy about this. She goes on a whole face journey as she's going through, like, all of the backstory that Tom is giving her and what she's going to be wearing as her costume. (laughs) Incredible. Yes. uh, Janeway gets hilarious into character basically immediately. (laughs) (laughs) 
like it opens on her and after a moment where she's like, ah, she immediately drops into character as Arachnia Queen of the Spider People. And this is where you remember that Kate Mulgrew was a soap opera actress at one point. <laughs> Kate Mulgrew is a gift to all of us. <laughs> she really is. Anyway, in order to convince Chaotica to lower the lightning shield around his fortress, she agrees to marry him. <gasps> because he's in love with her. <laughs> Hence the name Bride of Chaotica. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Doctor, who's also a hologram, the Doctor on Voyager is a hologram because the actual Doctor died when they got yeeted into the Delta Quadrant, so they've been making do with the emergency medical hologram. The Doctor is posing as President of Earth, complete with a badge that says President of Earth. Oh my god. <laughs> and he goes to form an alliance with the Photonic Aliens. <laughs> And it's like, hey, Flash Gordon can help defeat Chaotica. All you have to do is suspend your fire while he does his bombing run. Okay, so is he in character? Because the Doctor, like, as a character is incredibly dry. Yeah, he's in character as President of Earth. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, so Chaotica manages to catch on that Arachne is, like, trying to get the lightning shield down for, like, nefarious reasons. And does the whole, haha, you are now captured. Janeway can't be killed because the safety protocols are on, but they warn her that she can be captured. So she gets captured, but she uncorks, like, this bottle of spider queen pheromones that she's got. No. Yeah, complete with, like, the visible fumes that waft over to, like, Chaotica's chief crony and lure him over. No. And then proceeds to knock that guy out, escape from her chains, and deactivate the shield. Chaotica lunges for the death ray and tries to fire on the photonic aliens, but the photonic aliens fire first. And then, like, Chaotica gets zapped as a result, and haha, Chaotica is dead. He has been defeated. The aliens retreat, and Voyager can now continue on towards the Alpha Quadrant. But be warned, you have not seen the last of Chaotica. Completely <laughs> like they go turn to look at, like, a little video monitor, and it has, like, the ending sequence from one of the Flash Gordon episodes. It says, the end, and then a little question mark appears. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> Do you know why this episode exists? Why? This episode exists because Voyager's bridge set caught fire <gasps> and they needed a filler episode that took place almost entirely off the bridge while it was repaired. What? Yes! Oh my, oh, how did- Bottle episodes! <laughs> Seriously? How did it catch fire? That actually happened! <laughs> the bridge set is like important! That's like the major place people spend time in Star Trek! <laughs> it caught fire! <laughs> what kind of fire? It caught fire! They had to repair all the burn marks. What? What kind of fire? There are people who don't like this episode, and that's because they hate fun. <laughs> Here's the thing. Kate Mulgrew, over the course of, like, Voyager, it feels like Kate Mulgrew was not necessarily acting well, but she was acting as hard as she could. Whatever choices that she was making, she was doing them as much as she could in a very, honestly, what I felt was a very Vincent Price fashion. <laughs> so I can only imagine what she's doing when she is being Captain Janeway in character as another character. Arachnia Queen of the Spider People. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> The only thing I like even more than her acting as Arachnia Queen of the Spider People is the face journey she goes on as she's, like, reading, like, Arachnia's character sheet. It's very good. God, I can bet. <laughs> Bride of Chaotica is very good. You should watch Bride of Chaotica. I might go back and watch Bride of Chaotica. <laughs> this is a twofer, actually, our next honorable mention. It's two episodes that take place, like, six episodes apart from each other, called Fairhaven and Spirit Folk. These are season six, episodes 11 and 17. Fairhaven was written by Robin Berger, and then Spirit Folk was written by Brian Fuller again. 
These two episodes involve a holodeck program on Voyager called Fair Haven. Yeah, of course they do. Which is an idyllic 19th century Irish country town. Of course it is. And the whole crew ends up liking the program so much that they pretty much run it 24-7 and naturally this causes problems. So what happens in this intervening six episode period between these two? A whole bunch of other Star Trek stuff. <laughs> the gap between these two episodes is entirely episodic. It's not serialized at all. And then they just sort of come back to this? They visit it in episode 11, and then they visit it again in episode 17. Huh. And aside from that, it's not really mentioned at all. Huh. So when Fairhaven were first introduced to this program, Janeway in particular becomes really interested in the hologram pub landlord, Michael. Mm-hmm. However, she has some mods to install first. Horny mods? Uh, <laughs> Shirtless mods. <laughs> They're horny mods. She makes him taller. She makes him more educated. She gives him like some tasteful scruff. Oh, and she deletes his wife. <laughs> There's a scene where she's looking at him dead in the eyes as he's like being modded. And he's just like a mannequin staring off into the distance. And she says, computer, delete the wife. <laughs> it is incredible. I appreciate that. Yeah, the whole crew, meanwhile, is like, hey, Janeway, you're so distressingly horny all the time. You should f*** the hologram, man. We want to live. <laughs> so Janeway is perhaps weirded out by this because she backs off on dating Michael after modding him so extensively. And then Michael immediately becomes hologram depressed. <laughs> of course. Meanwhile, there's this big space storm that hits the ship and, like, severely damages the holodeck. So they need to take Fairhaven offline to make repairs. So it's like the wrap-up of the episode, Janeway summons Michael to the holodeck workroom-type situation where she was modding him, turns on his brain, says that she has to leave Fairhaven, but she'll be back, and then they kiss. And then Janeway deliberately loses her Nexus Mods password, so she can't make any more changes to him. <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. Okay. Huh. Janeway now has a hologram boyfriend. So do we come back to the hologram boyfriend? We do, because the next episode, six episodes later, is Spirit Folk. So the people of Fairhaven actually start to notice that there's something weird about the Voyager crew. And it turns out that the subroutines that are all like in place to keep the holodeck characters from noting anything outside their own context, those are offline. Of course. And the townsfolk become convinced that the Voyager crew are demons and or fairies preying on Fairhaven with black magic. You know, I really appreciate that holodecks are just whatever the hell you want them to be. Like... <laughs> They have subroutines to not notice that the real people are real people. That's wild. Like, <laughs> that's bananas. Yeah, they have an entire don't worry about it subroutine. <laughs> <laughs> so the Voyager crew finally figure out that this is going on, and they decide that they're going to fix everyone at once from the pub inside the holodeck. <laughs> And unfortunately, the townsfolk find out about this plan, so they interpret it as some kind of black magic ritual against the town, and they capture the crew so they can be quote-unquote exercised. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Janeway's like, all right, I've had enough of this bullshit. So she shows up, and she explains that the whole crew is time travelers from space, which... Fine, fine, close enough, fine. So the towns, after some persuading, the townsfolk accept that the crew are peaceful explorers, and all is well in Fairhaven, and the Fairhaven program never appears in the show again. <laughs> so they've just got that. <laughs> it's never even brought up. That's just still running. You can assume it's still there, you can assume everyone got bored of it, I don't know. The point is... We just don't know. Fairhaven is never even mentioned again. Does Janeway, like, make awkward eye contact with her sexy bartender? <laughs> uh, we just don't know. In Spirit Folk, it's clear that they're, like, dating, I guess. 
Hmm. But we never find out, like, how long that relationship lasts. Okay, <laughs> so my final honorable mention is a Next Generation episode called Masks, which is season 7, episode 17. It's written by a writer named Joe Minoski. You see a lot of weird shit in TNG season 7 because they were just straight up putting all their unused ideas on screen. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that there's a lot of Next Gen season 7 on this list. Yeah, season 7 is by far the weirdest Next Gen season just some bizarre shit that ended up on screen because at this point, like, they knew it was the final season. They didn't have to worry about getting canceled. They didn't have to worry about losing people. Let's just go buck wild. So for this episode, the Enterprise comes across this weird comet in space, like the other weird comets in space that they come across. But this weird comet, like, zaps the ship with something, and these strange symbols start appearing in the ship's computer. And further investigation of the comet reveals it's actually some kind of floating space informational archive that's been just drifting for millions and millions of years. And then meanwhile, it turns out Data can read these symbols and he starts acting weird soon. And he starts like developing a whole bunch of different personalities. And all of them are talking about someone they're terrified of called Masaka. And then the archive starts turning parts of the ship into some kind of old alien city. A torpedo ends up full of snakes. Um. <laughs> what? Yeah. Picard decides to talk to Data's new alternate personalities because we needed some, like, actor-on-actor -actor combat in this episode, I guess. And Picard decides that he's going to confront Masaka so they can transform a section of the ship into Masaka's temple, and then Data shows up playing Masaka, and Picard figures out that he needs to play the part of Cargana, who's Masaka's counterpart. It's a whole sun and moon gods thing. Masaka is the sun, Cargano is the moon. It's two really, really good actors bounce off each other for like five straight minutes. Holy shit. And then Masaka agrees to go back to sleep, and everything got back to normal doubt. Data's fine, don't worry about it. This is the episode to see... If you want to watch Brent Spiner play like 30 characters in one episode. <laughs> I do like seeing Brent Spiner. <laughs> it's, it's, it's wild. I don't understand this episode, but I do enjoy what Brent Spiner and <laughs> Patrick Stewart are doing in it. Okay, now we're on to our actual top 10 list. Okay, 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 <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Nazis. Nazis. So, number 10 is Patterns of Force, which is an original series episode, season 2, episode 23, written by John Meredith Lucas. Original series was less an exploration of the universe and more an explanation of the Paramount backlog. This also explains a later episode in this list. Okay. <laughs> and a lot of other episodes besides. That does make sense. Yeah. It's just basically like, what do we have in terms of sets? We have no budget. We have a World War II set. Let's fucking go with it. So this episode also is the first one on our list to sort of the Prime Directive becomes very relevant to it. The Prime Directive is basically this rule in Star Trek amongst the good guys that if a society hasn't developed like warp space travel yet, you're not supposed to f*** with them. You're supposed to let them develop the way they were quote unquote going to. And then there's a whole lot of episodes about the Prime Directive and what a side of the issue that the episode falls on is entirely dependent on, like, who's writing that episode. This show never presents a particularly coherent ideology when it comes to the Prime Directive. So who wrote this one? John Meredith Lucas. Hmm. It sounds like a poet's name. Star Trek ended up hiring a lot of people who were writing short stories for the sci-fi fantasy magazines at the time, which is how Harlan Ellison ended up writing an episode, although the episode that aired was very different from the one he wrote. Hmm. The Enterprise heads to the planet Ecos, and they're trying to find Kirk's old history teacher, who was assigned there as a cultural observer, which basically means he's supposed to be there, he's supposed to pretend to be one of the locals, and he's not supposed to interfere with anything. And then when the ship arrives, it's immediately attacked by a nuclear missile, which the people on this planet are not supposed to have. 
<laughs> Something has gone wrong. So as per usual, the entire command team, which is Kirk and Spock, beam down to discover that the whole planet is Nazis. It's not Nazi allegories. It's not Nazi-like aliens. It is literally just Nazis. It is the swastika. It is like the Third Reich. They do, in fact, say Nazi. There's lots of things that hypothetically this alien world would not have had the cultural reference or the development to actually get into. They just took a hard left into Nazi Germany. Yeah, this is entirely World War II sets and costumes. There's another episode later that takes place on like a parallel Earth development if ancient Rome had like progressed far enough to discover TV. We're not getting into that right now, but for the sake of this one, yeah, it's literally just Nazis. Kirk and Spock get homoerotically interrogated and Spock manages to like jury rig a laser gun out of a light bulb when a chip McCoy stuck in his arm earlier. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. They do that in prison after like getting lashed, which yeah. is really, really great because it's just like somebody just took a tube of lipstick and just sort of drew some marks down William Shatner's back and then took like some green paint and did the same for Leonard Nimoy. And it's like, yeah, no, they really got flogged. Definitely. HD was not kind to this show. <laughs> This is much easier to pass off as actual lashes when the screen was nine inches across. They manage to escape from Nazi prison, and then they find out that Kirk's old history teacher is now the Fuhrer. Whoopsie! <laughs> Apparently the teacher's plan to resolve the anarchy he was seeing all over this planet was to make everyone Nazis, because Nazis were, quote, the most efficient government in history. Not true. And then the Nazis turned on him and drugged him into compliance, and they've been weakened at Bernie's him around for speeches ever since. And it's also completely wild because it posits at this whole thing throughout this episode that's like, well, Nazis would have worked and Nazis would have been fine if Hitler hadn't been such a monster. Clearly, if someone else was in charge, this whole thing just would have been normal and cool. It's a deeply weird stance for this to be taking. <laughs> It's some real Gene Roddenberry, well, we won't have lawyers in the future because we'll just correct people's minds when they're wrong shit. Yeah, no, this isn't actually a Gene episode. You can tell when you're watching a Gene episode. In a Gene episode, there's usually like an alien or a machine that either is God or is pretending to be God. Mm -hmm. And then the captain gives a speech about how humans are better than God because they're fallible or something. And then the God alien machine is like determined to be undeserving of its power etc etc it's a whole thing and then at the end you know despite the fact that our whole understanding of the universe has changed nothing is different and it's fine <laughs> that's what a gene episode is sure <laughs> so anyway they managed to take out the guy who has been puppeting the history teacher dude around but history teacher dude gets killed and then everybody decides the prime directive is a good after all and, and, and then everyone just does a leave <laughs> they just leave they also conveniently don't mention any, like, you know, camps or anything that they've been putting there. People from another planet that they dislike into. They just kind of gloss over all of that. Yeah. This episode isn't really that weird in execution, except for the fact that it's just Nazis. <laughs> it's really just actual historical Nazis. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> the next one's where it gets weird. <laughs> uh, so this next one is one Annie explicitly messaged me. He's like, Mac... Even if you watch zero of the others, I need you to watch this one. <laughs> I'm going to watch it after this. Okay. I didn't. I had no time between when you told me and now. I figured if you had watched it, you would have been DMing me about it. <laughs> yeah. Number nine is The Thaw, which is uh, season two, episode 23 of Voyager. So the only thing I know about this one is 16 hour clown orgy, everybody. No, no, no. No, no, no. Sorry. 15 to 19 year oh, clown sorry. orgy. 15 to 19 year clown orgy. 
Yeah. Unclear which of those it is, but anyway. <laughs> this one is written by Joe Minoski again, the guy who did masks. <laughs> He's just like this, I guess. Voyager comes across this planet that used to apparently be like a thriving trade colony. A lot of early Voyager is them like using Neelix, who's their local guy, to like go to places that he knows about to get supplies and stuff. And then later they get completely out of Neelix's like sphere of knowledge or influence and becomes a completely useless character. He was a completely useless character to start with, but he becomes even more useless. Anyway, so thanks to a solar flare 19 years ago, this colony is now completely dead, except the Voyager is apparently being hailed from the surface. And it turns out that they've set off this automated signal saying that, hey, all the survivors of this big catastrophic event, we've all gone into stasis underground and we're going to wait out whatever it is that's going on. And the thing is, is they find out from the signal that these people were supposed to wake up four years ago. <laughs> yeah, because they're like, please don't bother us. And then they're like, immediately, well, we should bother them. It's like, oh, they should have woken up four years ago. We should go bother them. Uh, so Janeway decides they should just beam the stasis pods onto the ship. If they're plugged into anything, I guess, fuck that. But they just beam them on board the ship because they didn't want to do all this stuff down on the planet, I guess. Anyway, in the pods, they find like three living aliens and two dead ones. And there appears to be no reason why the dead ones are dead. So they decide to hack into the simulation that these aliens have basically set up for themselves to, like, keep their minds active and alert and, like, let them know what things are like on the surface. Yeah, it's like a shared dream simulation thing. Everyone inside there is supposed to be able to wake up whenever they want, but for some reason they haven't. The doctor starts examining the two dead ones and he's like, oh, they died of fear-induced heart attacks. So that's probably fine. And Voyager's like, well, we can't figure out how to turn this off from the outside, so I guess we should go inside. <laughs> and guess what's in the simulation, guys? It's a clown orgy. <laughs> it's an evil clown in the simulation. It's like, what, like, it's like a weird, incredibly low-budget Cirque du Soleil. There's basically two rooms in this entire dream space. It's two rooms, and it's filled with Cirque du Soleil rejects, and it's weird. It's a clown orgy. And there's a clown in charge who is just listed in the credits as the clown. <laughs> the clown is apparently this like manifestation of the fears of the people who are plugged into the simulation. And he's come to life and now he's been tormenting them for the last 19 years and he's tormenting the crew. I just, <laughs> they set up like 19 years ago, these aliens were like, all right, we need a program. We need a program that will keep us going for like 15 years. We need to have something that will keep us alert, refreshed, that will keep us from descending into our subconsciouses. We need to be like engaged and calm. And what do we have? And somebody wrote down clown orgy on the whiteboard <laughs> and they circled it and did it. <laughs> I want a 19 year long clown orgy to keep me refreshed. I could sort of buy how they, like, decided to put an algorithm in charge of what the simulation would be, and the algorithm, like most automated AI algorithms, just eventually iterated its way to clown orgy. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally believe that this happened. If you leave a program alone long enough, it will eventually turn into a clown orgy. I'm pretty sure that's how Blaseball happened. I'm also pretty sure that's how Second Life happened. A distressing amount of the episode is just Harry and Bellana getting tortured by this clown. And not even, like, completely tortured. A lot of times they're just sitting around being upset while a clown orgy happens. And the clown yeah. just sort of yells at them. And, like, the crew outside tries and fails to negotiate 
for the rest of the episode with a clown. They fail to negotiate with a clown. And it's also wild because this is Star Trek. Usually if something is not alive and then says, I want to live, that's what the episode is about. That's like the whole general thrust. Incorrect. This is Voyager. If something is not alive and then says, I want to live, Janeway personally murders that thing. (laughs) That's what happens in Voyager. (laughs) That's completely incidental. That's something that's not alive says, I want to live. They're just like, well, we can't have that. You're a clown. (laughs) There's an entire episode where Neelix and Tuvok get fused into a single person called Tuvix. And Tuvix is like, I am my own distinct person. I want to live. And Jane was like, no, we need Neelix and Tuvok back. So she like personally performs the procedure that separates them again, murdering Tuvix. (laughs) Janeway doesn't f*** around, as we find out shortly, because finally Janeway's like, all right, I've had enough of this. (laughs) She comes up with a plan. The clown needs the program to exist, and the program only runs as long as people are hooked up to it. So Janeway says, okay, in exchange for my crew and the remaining survivors inside this program, I will hook myself up to it and you can torture me for forever. So the clown agrees to this. Janeway pops into the program and it turns out, whoops, it was actually a fake hologram, Janeway. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out you can just make artificial intelligence Janeways whenever you want. Who will then give terrifying monologues about how fear exists to be conquered. Oh my god, there's at some point where like, Kate Mulgrew is like, opining about how to defeat the clown. And she's like, what does fear want at the end of the ride? It's like, what choices are you making, Kate? (laughs) so darkness falls and the program shuts down and at the end of it the clown says i'm scared and janeway whispers back i know (laughs) end of episode (laughs) right to credits there's not a denouement right to credits there's nothing there's no wrap-up here it's just a darkness and a clown saying i'm scared because the clown it turns out the whole time just wanted to be topped by janeway do not f*** with Janeway. <laughs> she will top you and you will not enjoy it. And then you'll die. Because you will die. <laughs> Don't f*** with Janeway. I just, Mackenzie, you have to watch this one. <laughs> it's my personal belief, based totally on you guys describing this, that Captain Janeway, like Shepard in Mass Effect, just went to a store and bought a bunch of holograms of herself and now uses those. I guess, like... Almost definitely. You can just make a, a Janeway hologram now, it turns out, that's programmed to be exactly Janeway. That's fine. Let's never bring that up. Can she go make out with, like, with the freaking Fairhaven bartender? Can that be their happily ever after? Janeway is, like, a beautifully complex character who, like, will kill you. <laughs> She's absolutely terrifying. And everyone is both terrified and fascinated by her, apparently. And the show keeps trying to position her as, like, this sort of Captain Kirk a father to her men type situation. No, the crew is terrified of her and fascinated by her in equal measure. That's the dynamic with Janeway and it's great. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Next episode, though. Next episode is another Voyager episode. This one's called Alice. Episode 5 of season 6, and it's again written by Brian Fuller and Michael Taylor. (laughs) It's like, have you seen the episode of Futurama where they put a female voice onto the Planet Express ship AI, voiced by Sigourney Weaver, and then she and Bender start dating, and it eventually has her chasing him down, yelling, me want engulf Bender? 
Yeah. That's this episode. That, but it takes itself seriously. <laughs> so Tom Paris has picked up this shitty used ship in a space junkyard. It can plug directly into his brain. This is probably going to be fine. No, he gets into an abusive relationship with a spaceship. Yeah, he starts fixing it up and he names it Alice. And then once it's scanned his brain, it gives itself a female voice. And then it starts getting jealous of Tom's girlfriend, Bellana. <laughs> And it's not just like, oh, wacky, the spaceship doesn't like the girl. Like, it starts doing, like, weird crap, like, you should come away with me, Tom. We can go away forever. You've always wanted to <laughs> sail. Let's sail into a singularity for some reason. Particle fountain. <laughs> yeah, so, like, Tom starts missing ships and spending more and more time working on Alice. Like, he starts stealing parts for her. He's wearing a really stupid outfit that she designed for him. So they can match. Also, he's now hallucinating that she's a human woman. What? And then she tries to kill Bellana. <laughs> they actually do like some good things here. You know how you'll have some of those shots sometimes where like the camera slowly spins around and what it's done is like the actors are basically just ducking right out of the camera's range and then pop up. So it's a single take, but like stuff changes as it revolves. They do a couple of times at that that are really effective. So Alice tries to kill Bellana and then mind controls Tom into flying off inside of her phrasing. He's completely connected to the spaceship and he starts getting wires put in him. Yeah, I guess like cocoon and wires. <laughs> and then Voyager's crew gets back in touch with the guy who sold Tom the ship. And he also got mind controlled by Alice and he claims that the ship is haunted <laughs> because she needs a pilot specifically because she wants to fly into a particle fountain. Why? <laughs> It never explains why. Apparently the particle found in his home for whatever, like, weird energy alien has possessed the ship. I don't know. Anyway, they manage to beam Tom out of the ship right before it flies into the particle fountain and blows up. And then Tom gets a nice get well card in sickbay and that's the end of the episode. <laughs> he doesn't need therapy or anything after this. <laughs> Nobody on Voyager needs therapy and Janeway told them so. <laughs> and are you going to disagree with Janeway? No. No! <laughs> so this next one, though, I actually really like this episode. I thought this was actually a good episode of Star Trek. It was an odd one, but it was not like a bad episode. Yeah, no, it's not bad. The episodes I've got listed here aren't the worst ones. They're just some of the weirdest ones. <laughs> yeah. Number seven is Phantasms, which is the next generation, episode six of season seven. Again, with a season seven episode. This one's written by Brandon Braga. I mentioned him before. Brennan Brogger writes some of the most unhinged Star Trek you will ever see. <laughs> he came onto the back half of TNG, he wrote some of the weirdest crap in the entire show, and then he went on to be the lead writer of Voyager, probably because the DS9 writer's room said, get out of here, Brennan Braga, you know, we don't want you here. <laughs> this is the one that you get a lot of gift sets and memes and clips and stuff from, because this is one of the episodes where, like, Data explains how to take care of his kitty cat. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a lot of Data's dream imagery in this that's, like, very good for explaining how weird Star Trek is. So the background info for this episode is that in a previous episode, Data had discovered he had the ability to dream. He developed it late. Apparently it was something that was programmed into him that was always supposed to switch on. Now he can dream. Which Data, like, spends a lot of Star Trek getting, like, human bits and then selectively deciding which ones that he should probably have. It's a whole thing. He's living the dream, honestly. So Data has started having nightmares about getting attacked and dismantled by, like, old-timey railway workmen he finds in the halls of the Enterprise. <laughs> and you know how dreams are a metaphor? 
Also, the warp core is having problems. Again! This isn't so bad, though, because the ship's current assignment is to take Picard to this banquet he hates and doesn't want to go to. So the fact that there's engine trouble means that he's like, oh, no, I guess I can't go. <laughs> there's a really good B-plot in here with them trying to fix this warp core thing where, like, first off, Picard is like, I would really rather not. But, oh, no. And then, like, also getting nervous that he still has to go but doesn't quite want to. So, like, he hovers over Geordi LaForge being like, have you tried fixing that? What about that? It's like, Cap. Captain, we could use help moving these boxes. <laughs> There's also this really good bit where it's this complete throwaway conversation of like Worf and Riker walking and talking. Well, Worf is like, I hate that you got my son into these records. You gave my son music. And as we all know, I hate my son. <laughs> And there's this bit where Riker's just like, oh, no, no, Worf, it's not music. It's jazz. <laughs> Meanwhile, Data's dreams are getting really surreal and disturbing. Imagery includes Crusher drinking from Riker's head with a straw, Troy transformed into a cake that screams when people try to cut it, and more of the railway workmen who hate it when Data makes a shrieking noise with his mouth. I have a recipe for this cake, actually. <laughs> It's a cellular peptide cape with, with mint frosting. frosting. If you've ever seen like a weird gif of Star Trek, it's probably from this dream sequence. Because, wow, it weird. <laughs> Data even starts seeing the dream imagery when he's awake. He starts seeing these weird toothy mouths on people's necks, which culminates in Data stabbing Troy in one of the weird toothy mouths. <laughs> She goes to the med bay and Dr. Crusher examines the wound and there's actually an invisible alien parasite there that Data has stabbed. Oh my god, like, I could keep bringing up Vincent Price as much as I want, but these things are like a miniature version of The Tingler from Vincent Price's The Tingler, where there is a weird slug that lives on your spine when you get scared. <laughs> huh. Yeah, there's in fact invisible alien parasites on everybody. Isn't this also an anime? Is this Boogie Pop Phantom? <laughs> It might be Boogie Pop Phantom. Huh. Data, meanwhile, is like, oh no, I stabbed Troy. I can't trust myself around people. Worf, you gotta look after my cat. <laughs> oh my god. It's this whole thing where he's like, you have to tell him he is a good kitty and a smart kitty and give him lots of pets and feed him and hug him and love him. And Worf's like, I will feed him. <laughs> <laughs> First off, Data is also not totally holding this cat right, but he's an android. Worf is just straight up just holding this cat out at arm's length with his, like, hands right under the cat's armpits like it's freaking Lion King. And as he walks away holding Spot like this, he sneezes because it turns out he's allergic to cats. <laughs> it's a very good cat. <laughs> Everyone eventually determines that these parasites are somehow linked to Data's dreams, so they hook Data up to the holodeck so they can all see his dreams. Oh my god, can we also just talk real quick about how Data's like whole thing where he goes to sleep is he actually gets in a bed and he sits there, <laughs> yawns, stretches out his arms like yawn, then he just lies back and closes his eyes because that's what people do. He does not have to do any of this. That's what people do. <laughs> He just does it because that's what people do. So Data figures out that the parasites, which are represented by the workmen, can be killed by an interfacic pulse, which is represented in his dreams by the shrieking noise he's been making. So they make the interfacic pulse by making Data make it, and then they plug it in into like the aux cord of the ship, and all the parasites die, and the day is saved, and Picard still doesn't have to attend that banquet. <laughs> 
So we are on to number six, a piece of the action. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. This is an original series episode, uh, season two, episode 20, written by David P. Harmon and Jean L. Kuhn. Two people wrote this? <laughs> two people wrote this. Two people wrote this together? Two old people wrote this. Remember what I said about the original series in the Paramount backlot? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're like, we've got 1920s Chicago. What can we do with that? Okay, so like Mackenzie, you remember the great movie ride at Disney World? Yes. It's like that. It's like the mob part of that, but it's the whole episode. What? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so the Enterprise arrives at this planet and they explain that like humans contacted this planet before the Prime Directive went into effect. So they're going to check in to see how bad the contamination is. So they beam down and they find out that the entire planet is mobsters. It's just all 1920 Chicago mobsters. Every single person is a mobster. They got to mobster and stayed there. And we're not talking about like historical 1920s. We're talking about gangster movies. They are just gangster movie people. Like everyone is a dame. Everyone has a whole bunch of like guns and they're all wearing striped suits. It's amazing. Yeah, it turns out that the humans who were here last left behind this book about mobsters in the 1920s and the people of this planet decided this is their Bible and they built their entire society around it. Straight up, they've got lecterns with the book on there with like the little ribbon in the middle. It is straight up their actual Bible. One of the alien mob bosses, a guy named Oxmix, he captures Kirk and Co. at gunpoint. They literally just yank Tommy guns out of nowhere to hold them at gunpoint. And then oh my god, demand- this and like the Nazi episode, everyone has this the worst gun handling ever. Like everyone is just holding guns and just waving them around with their fingers on the trigger, pointing at people constantly. It's amazing. So Oxmix demands that like the Enterprise supply him with guns, which he keeps calling heaters, so he can w- wipe out the other bosses and take control of the planet. And Kirk's like, no! <laughs> Like, Matt, you remember how in, like, the Star Trek, like, Save the Whales movie, it was really charming that they didn't understand 1980s lingo? Yes. What if that wasn't charming? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So they're held hostage because, of course, once again, Kirk beamed down with the entire command crew and Oxmix delivers this ultimatum to Scotty aboard the Enterprise instead. Scotty is second officer. He's third in command. When Kirk and Spock are off the ship, Scotty's captain. (laughs) And, like... There's so many episodes where, like, they'll finally manage to call back to the Enterprise after many trials and tribulations, and Scotty's like, oh, you're in trouble again? <laughs> like, you think Scotty's just been, like, maintaining the ship just fine while they've all been gone? Yeah, almost invariably, to the point where, like, you think he ever, like, politely asked them to stop beaming down to every planet with the entire command structure and also the chief medical officer? <laughs> I think it probably happens a lot. <laughs> It's like, listen, for maybe just once, can we try it some other way? And he's like, no, we need everyone important plus this guy in a red shirt. By the way, there is later an episode of original series where Scotty gets framed for murder by Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. Not like holodeck Jack the Ripper. No. I'm upset. (laughs) Anyway, Kirk and Spock in like space jail again. Kirk decides he's going to bamboozle his guards by like, I guess, teaching them (laughs) Yu-Gi-Oh! He just improvises this really complicated card game on the spot, (laughs) which distracts them long enough that the other members of the away team can, like, overpower the guards and take their guns. (laughs) This episode lasts so long. I was playing a lot of Minesweeper to get through it. And then, like, I look up after a little while and Kirk is now in a full mob outfit and he's affected a broken accent. Like, 
William Shatner is just doing as much as he possibly can in this episode, to the point that by the end, he is referring to himself not as Kirk, but Koik. He calls Spock Spocko? <laughs> I don't know why he suddenly decided he needed to talk like this, but he, he does. <laughs> Trust me when I say I've watched this episode multiple times. I've yet to figure out why he decided he needed to be wearing the suit and the fedora and calling Spock Spocko. I just... I don't understand how we got to that point. I do know that a child did the most confusing distraction ever at one point. That's all I've got. We also find out Kirk doesn't know how to drive. <laughs> Which is the best argument in favor of, like, original series Kirk being gay. <laughs> anyway, Kirk manages to gain the upper hand long enough to declare himself king of the mobsters. And to enforce this, he has the Enterprise do a drive-by stun of Oxmix's headquarters. And then he demands a 40% cut of all crime. Kirk is thriving a little too much in this environment. It's also weird because he's doing this this accent, this mob accent, and then he calls the Enterprise and like talks to them normally. Like he just straight up code switches. <laughs> I guess the Federation's going to come by and pick up that 40% of all crime at some point and then like reinvest it in the development of the planet. I just, I don't know. I don't know where that 40% cut of all crime is going. It's very unclear why this episode or how it happens. Anyway, the Enterprise leaves and then McCoy realizes he left his communicator behind on the planet. Whoopsie! <laughs> Do they ever touch base on that? Well, there's a beta canon incident where they go back and find out that everyone, like, dresses and acts like original series Trek. <laughs> so these are the most impressionable people ever. Yes. Apparently there's going to be a thing in an upcoming episode of Trek somewhere where they go back to this planet and find out what up that they get up to, and I'm very excited for it. But if I ever play the Star Trek RPG, my character is going to be from Mobster Planet. <laughs> oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> And that's the end of the episode. <laughs> there were a couple of episodes on this list where on Netflix for me, it was like the season number was fine, but the episode number was one off from the title. And I went by the title. So I don't know if I actually watched the correct next ones or not. The next one, for instance, I had to choose between two episodes in the description and gauge which one was probably correct. And I was really torn because one of them was the Enterprise team is beamed down to a planet run by little Lord Fauntleroy, who also put you in the cornfield if you're bad. And that sounded par for the course. But the other one was Kirk fights a Gorn for 30 minutes. <laughs> is that literally the episode description on Netflix? No, no, no. This is just what I ended up with. It said something about a Gorn, and I was like, that sounds familiar. I bet that's it. Because, well, I've seen Galaxy Quest. This is the Gorn episode, kids. Number five is Arena, original series, season one, episode 18, written by Gene L. Coon again. <laughs> it's the Gorn episode. So the Enterprise arrives at this Federation outpost that has been blown to fuck by these lizard aliens called Gorn and decide to have a low-speed chase after this Gorn ship that goes on for an incredibly long time. Oh god, they spent so long on this planet set, just wandering around, trying to avoid missiles, doing little flips and tumbles while some dude in a red shirt immediately dies. It's almost, like, cliché. It's almost parodically Star Trek, and they did this in season one. So, the low-speed chase after the Gorn ship is stopped by another alien species called the Metron, who are highly advanced, and they don't particularly like that these two lesser species are having a slap fight in their space. So the Metrons <laughs> join both Kirk and the Gorn captain and deposit them on this desert planet that looks suspiciously like the California desert. 
And then they say, okay, you two have to settle your differences or kill each other or something. We don't particularly care. The winner and his ship get to leave. The loser and his ship get destroyed. So the Gorn captain <laughs> is a lizard man in a kicky little go-go dress and some boots. Yeah, this costume is so goddamn heavy. It is gigantic. They basically put someone in a kaiju costume and then had Kirk fight this person very, very slowly. The fight is in quotation marks. Kirk and the Gorn punch each other very, very slowly for the next 45 minutes. The Gorn, like, crafts a knife and creates an elaborate trap to try and kill Kirk. Kirk, meanwhile, is eating random things off the ground and decides he's going to make a diamond cannon out of dirt and rocks and stuff. Because the alien promised him there would be weapons on the planet, and he looks at, like, the sticks and, like, the large logs and rocks and stuff, and he's like, no, can't be that. No. It must have something to do with the diamonds that are strewn about the planet's surface, where diamonds are. I can make gunpowder from scratch. This is fine. And the worst part is this plan works. <laughs> He blasts the Gorn in the face with high-velocity diamond shards, and then he's like, nah, I'm gonna let you live, though. And, like, the Gorn, meanwhile, has just been doing perfectly fine on his own, until he's finally like, hey, dude, we've been at this for, like, hours. Can I just kill you, please? Like, can we can we be done with this? And meanwhile, like, Kirk is just narrating into his fucking diary about like finding diamonds on the ground and like wanting to live and just like the stuff that he just ate because he was peckish <laughs> so he decides to let the Goran captain live after shooting him in the face with high velocity diamond shards and the metrons are so impressed by this concept of mercy that they return the Gorn to his ship and then they turn to Kirk and be like uh, we can kill them if you want and Kirk is like uh no thanks which is, again, like a 180 because he had been like dead set on killing these guys. It tries to do some kind of small plot about how like, no, you actually had a colony in Gorn space and we were defending ourselves by destroying this colony. And that's not quite how that works, but it was an invasion. So now everyone's free to go. Violence might be wrong or something. And that's the end of the episode. <laughs> But like 45 <laughs> minutes of Gorn fight. 45 minutes of Kirk and this guy in a kaiju suit punching each other very slowly. It's like watching a really slow episode of Dragon Ball Z, except the only parts that are played at normal speed are the parts where all of the other Z fighters hang out talking about how strong the fighters are. <laughs> Like, because sometimes they'll cut back to the ship and Spock's like, wow, he's going to make a diamond cannon. I knew he could do it. And it's like, yeah, Goku's really strong. <laughs> so anyway, our next episode is Genesis, number four. The Next Generation, season seven again, episode 19. Mm. Again, written by Brandon Braga, who does not understand how evolution works, I guess. Mm. <laughs> so... Uh. There's this recurring character in TNG. His name is Lieutenant Barkley. Barkley's a bit of a hypochondriac. He spends a lot of time in Troy's office, Troy being the shipboard therapist. He keeps coming to sickbay, claiming he's dying of some terminal illness he's looked up somewhere on WebMD in, in the future. Like, she straight up is just like, do not go on space, WebMD. I told you. I keep telling you. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> I still did. So Crusher diagnoses that he has a mild case of space flu. This particular strain humans are supposed to be naturally immune to. So Crusher gives him a gene therapy shot of some kind to fix this and then sends him on his way. And the best part is that this is all played like the cold open. Like this might thematically relate to the A plot typically, but like you're not really expected to know much about here. No, there is no B plot in this episode. <laughs> there is no B plot. It is all A plot. It is all on all the time. Also, Spot's going to have kittens. 
<laughs> so yeah. Meanwhile, we're on the bridge and this weapons test goes awry and Picard and Data decide that they personally have to go off and recover this lost torpedo. Because, you know, Sir Isaac Newton is the deadliest son of a bitch in space. They fired off a rocket. They can't just, like, let it go. I want you to know that I actually wrote down because Sir Isaac Newton is the deadliest son of a bitch in space. Good. Because I said that <laughs> aloud to myself as that happened. So, meanwhile, while they're gone, people on the ship start acting weird. You know, they're eating a lot. They're constantly too cold. They're having memory problems. They're spraying venom in Crusher's face. That kind of stuff. <laughs> the normal things. Normal problems. <laughs> so Picard and Data get back to the ship. It's been three days. It's been three days. And they discover that everyone has devolved into various different animals, like Riker's a caveman, Troy's a frog, Barkley's a spider, which, don't ask me how that happened. Oh, and Worf is the fucking xenomorph, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Like, I just, spider, though. Also, 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 at some point, they make it into Data's cabin, and Data's like, huh, that's weird. I hear kittens. Oh my gosh. Spot had the kittens finally, but where's Spot? And the camera pans over to an iguana wearing a collar. <laughs> <laughs> there have been cats for a very long time. There have been cats for a very long time. Why would it turn into an iguana? Because they had an iguana. Iguanas are egg laying. <laughs> So it turns out that this is all because that shot Crusher gave Barkley for some reason. The explanation they give is that it activated dormant parts of his DNA, and then because of the flu, it spread to the rest of the crew. This is not how anything works. So that just means you get a shot, and your body's like, all right, what do we got in here? What dormant DNA things do we have? I have something here for chitinous exoskeleton and lots of eyes and legs. Let's do it. So Data, looking at Spot, who's an iguana now, but all of her kittens, who are still kittens, he figures that they can use the amniotic fluid from a pregnant crew member to reverse the effects of the DNA virus. They have to get chased down by Worf, who is now a xenomorph and also wants to have sex with Troy the Frog. <laughs> yeah, Troy and Worf kind of like have in season seven a thing where they like start courting the idea of dating each other and it never really follows through, which is too bad because that was a fun relationship. I could see that working pretty well. However, Worf has to go meet his wife, the slug. <laughs> Star Trek can only do compelling romances by accident. <laughs> so Data is making the cure while Picard is getting chased around the ship by Worf the Xenomorph. Here's the best thing about a lot of these episodes is that they're just fine at the end of it. It's an episodic show, so they're all back to normal by the end. Everyone's fine. No one actually needs to, like, have a whole lot of decompression about how they were like a caveman or whatever. Data floods the ship with the cure. Everyone's saved. Everyone's back to normal. Don't worry about it. Barkley has a disease named after him, and he's developed several new neuroses because of this. And Troy, <laughs> to her credit, is like... I should probably keep my calendar open for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> it's just going to be eight hour blocks of Barkley for the next couple of weeks. Because, <laughs> you know, it's not like anyone else after a few weeks will need any amount of therapy about becoming a frog. Are Betazoids amphibious? What's happening? <laughs> I think the implication is that Betazoids evolved from amphibians. I don't know. I don't know for sure, because apparently people evolved from spiders and iguanas turned into cats. <laughs> Anyway, now we're on number three on the list, Spock's Brain. <laughs> That's literally the name of the episode. It's called Spock's Brain. I thought this was going to be about, you know, Spock being, I don't know, kidnapped or something or something. But like, no, again, 
the next season of Star Trek, season three of this hit television series. People are ready. They're engaged. And in the first five minutes, McCoy announces that Spock's brain is gone. (laughs) Yeah, this is original series, season three, episode six in some orders, episode one on Netflix, I believe. It's just don't worry about. Netflix told me this is how you start out season three. Yeah, well, it does kind of set the tone. (laughs) Written by Lee Cronin. The episode starts with, like, a mysterious woman teleporting on board the Enterprise, and then she steals Spock's brain. No, actually, that's how the episode opens. Literally, (laughs) his brain, his entire brain is gone. She teleports on board the ship, everyone gets knocked out, and when they wake up, Spock's brain has been surgically removed. (laughs) Like a cartoon! And because he's a Vulcan, he's still alive. <laughs> so they only have 24 hours to find Spock's brain and put it back in his head. So naturally, everyone just kind of punches around for 16 hours. <laughs> Luckily, at least, like, it's weird because this is a complete cartoon character plot. But McCoy is still like, there is literally no surgery to reattach an entire brain and have the person be fine. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I feel for McCoy. I drink too. (laughs) So the crew tracked this brain-stealing lady to a caveman planet where nobody seems to know what a woman is. So there's that. And then Kirk is exploring and he finds a cave with an obvious trap in it. (laughs) And so his best plan is to spring it. (laughs) God. He has McCoy beam down with Spock, and when McCoy gets there, it turns out that McCoy has hooked Spock up to a remote control that he can then drive around. (laughs) Because I guess they didn't want to carry around his body. McCoy's got a sweet RC Spock that he got for (laughs) Christmas. It makes the weirdest noises. So they go into the obvious trap and then everyone gets captured and taken below ground, where it turns out there's a whole community of women with the minds of children. Just beautiful women in flimsy dresses who don't understand these complex words. Please explain them. Yeah, the whole society is run by a supercomputer, which it turns out is now hooked up to Spock's brain. (laughs) Turns out the brain-stealing lady who is extremely dumb normally knew how to take Spock's brain out because she put on a special helmet that temporarily makes people like wicked smart. Like it's some sort of ancient civilization. Apparently there was some apocalyptic event where they decided all the men live on the surface and all the women live down below. Do not know how the reproduction works on that. I think the implication is they just kidnap men and bring them below ground when they need to, which we're not going to examine that too closely. Uh, anyway, after she explains all this, she's like, oh, and I just put the helmet on, so I'm pulling a gun on you now. (laughs) And then, and then, and then the way that they get out of this particular jam is that Scotty suddenly moans really loudly and everyone feels so awkward they stop. You know, that would explain, I looked down and then I looked back up and they were doing something different, so I guess that does work. Yeah, Scotty, I guess he was pretending to be hurt, but the practical upshot of this is that Scotty was like, ah, and everyone was like, okay, (laughs) I guess we're done. (laughs) So McCoy puts the helmet on so he can learn how to reattach Spock's brain, and he starts reattaching Spock's brain. I'm going to keep saying Spock's brain throughout this entire explanation. But unfortunately, the helmet wears off halfway through the brain surgery, but he's hooked up enough of Spock's brain that he can now ride shotgun on his own damn brain surgery. So they hook it up to Spock's mouth. So then Spock and McCoy work together to reattach his own brain. Meanwhile, during this entire process, Kirk is explaining to the women how rad boning is, I guess. (laughs) 
Yeah, because by the end of the episode, they're like, well, you don't really need this computer brain to like teach you how to live and keep you safe and everything. So why don't you go just like live on the surface in the Arctic and like, I don't know, make a house or something. That's probably not hard. (laughs) I'm sure it's fine. Anyway, it ends on an everybody laughs. (laughs) Of like, oh, he's alive again and I reattached his brain, but I wish he wouldn't talk so much. <laughs> End of episode. Spock's brain, though. They just take out the whole brain. They took out the whole brain and then they put it back in. Spock's brain. And then they put it in a computer. Yep, Spock's brain. <laughs> anyway, up next is number two Sub Rosa. <sighs> next Generation, season seven, episode 14, written by Brandon Braga, the one where Crusher f- a ghost. Every single time my gaming group talks about Star Trek, which comes up a lot because that's who we are, I have to hear again every single time about the fact that there was an episode where Beverly Crusher fucked a ghost (laughs) and that she fell asleep reading a particularly erotic chapter of her grandmother's diary. (laughs) And now I've seen it and I still don't care for it. Nobody does. This episode was directed by Jonathan Frakes, by the way. Yeah. Riker! Riker directed this episode. So, like, there had to have been points where Riker was like, all right. Like, what I have in my head is like, you know that super cut of that what if television show that Jonathan Frakes hosted where he, like, asks a question at the beginning. It's like, what's your favorite color? Have you ever eaten a really good hamburger? That was my favorite show when I was a kid. Did you ever fall asleep reading a particularly erotic chapter of your grandmother's diary? Uh, Do you like bicycles? Crusher is attending her grandmother's funeral on Space Scotland Planet. The whole planet's just Scotland. (laughs) It's all Scotland. The mayor of whom is like an alien guy who is not even like related to anyone from Scotland. He's just a Scottaboo. He just really liked Scotland. He went there once and he was like, I'm going to live in here, but in space. (laughs) I'm going to do this forever. So we have this like very solemn funeral scene. And then at the funeral, Crusher spots like a mysterious hot guy who throws a flower into grandma's grave. And that's the cold open. (laughs) Hot guy is such a generous statement. This guy is like 90s hot guy. So like he's got like a mullet. He looks like a Buffy character. He's hot by mid 90s standards. And I need you to understand that Duncan Regeer, he's played exactly one character. This is him. And, and he played this character and he played another character in Star Trek who was like a Bajoran in Deep Space Nine, I think. And then aside from that, he's a writer and he's a modern artist and he does some weird fucking sculpture. My Star Trek watching group got briefly obsessed with this guy just because everything about him was so incongruous. Ha. Huh. Anyway, Crusher is now going through her grandma's stuff. By the way, her son did not attend great grandma's funeral. Wesley did not show up to Graham Graham's <laughs> funeral because uh, Will Wheaton's relationship with the rest of the cast by this point was not particularly good. We never even mention him. There's not even like a throwaway of like, oh, where's your son? He does not exist at this point. Don't worry about it. Crusher's going through grandma's things. She finds a mysterious candle. This is apparently a family heirloom. And then some harbinger looking motherfucker bursts in, blows out the candle and rants at Crusher a bit about how it's cursed. <laughs> <laughs> This is a thing that happens in fun science fiction show Star Trek. (laughs) Like he's straight up, the house is haunted, the candle is haunted, do not light that candle, everything is terrible. And she's like, please leave my grandma's house. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so meanwhile, Crusher found her grandma's journals. 
and find out she had a much younger lover. And the journals are apparently quite explicit. Yeah. <laughs> and Crusher talks to Troy about this like it's completely normal to read your grandma's erotic memoirs. Like, they straight up just have some girl talk about it. I'll be real. If I found erotic memoirs that my grandma wrote, I'd be f***ing reading those just because that sounds amazing. Would you read them to people? Yeah, she would be sending us passages. You know she would. Yeah, no, that's true. I would be sending you passages. You know I would. That's true. You know me. So, like, apparently grandma just wrote some really good smut. Anyway, then Crusher gets seduced by a ghost. (laughs) And, like, straight up, a ghost. It is an invisible ghost. It's one of those, like, she's asleep in bed and she's like, ooh. Ooh, I read this erotica. Yeah. (laughs) There's a whole sequence in like grandma's house where there's a storm and the shutters and the candle. And she's like, where are you? Who are you? And he's like whispering to her from all around. And then he shows up. (laughs) So, okay. So like the subtitles for this, this ghost is named Ronan, which is a regular name. However, the subtitles, and I don't know if this is in the script, but the subtitles spell it R-O-N-I-N. Like, you know, a master with samurai. (laughs) (laughs) and it took me a while because i've had usagi yojimbo on the brain and one thing usagi yojimbo always does is someone says ronin and there's a little asterisk and there's a text box at the bottom of the panel that says masterless samurai because that's who stan sakai is but like like every single time she's like oh ronin and i'm like masterless samurai (laughs) i checked memory alpha and it is in fact spelled that so why <laughs> Why not, Annie? Brandon Braga thought it'd be funny. <laughs> Is that a common alternate spelling of Ronan? Yeah. Hold on, behind the name.org. Ronan. Master of the Samurai. It's like reading a fucking Thor comic, and every time they say Midgard, there's an asterisk in a box at the bottom that says Earth. I don't know if they still do that, but they should. So far, behind the name does not say that is a common variant. Great. <laughs> so it just introduced this extra level of weirdness. Yeah, so Crusher f***s a ghost. I'm gonna keep saying Crusher f***s a ghost. And it's great. She's into it. She's really into getting f***ed by a ghost. This ghost has apparently been getting f***y with every female member of Crusher's matrilineal line since the 1600s. (laughs) And she's fine with this. This ghost is some kind of- This ghost hopped planets with her. This ghost is an energy being that came down to Earth and was like, so that lady's hot, and then decided, well, she's old now. Her daughter, though- Uh, so crusher decides she's gonna leave the ship and stay on space scotland with her ghost boyfriend picard's like the fuck (laughs) yeah they're like are you sure about this do you want to talk about this no she does not want to talk about this she wants to go live on space scotland with her ghost boyfriend she just wants to get by a ghost every single day that's all she's into right now fair meanwhile in the b plot Jordy and Data have been, like, trying to fix the weathers on Space Scotland because it was apparently one of the first planets to be terraformed by the Federation. And they've been tracking these weird energy signatures that are causing weather problems. You know, like a big green storm. Oh! Yeah. They track the signatures to Crusher's grandma's grave and they decide they're going to exhume the body because that's how Jordy and Data roll. And then they are attacked by a zombie grandma. <laughs> oh my god, like straight up. I love the fact that they don't even dig up the body. <laughs> they just transport the coffin out of the grave. They transport the coffin like six feet up. Granted, there should be a whole bunch of earth underneath it right now, but don't worry about it. <laughs> zombie grandma. <laughs> Let's open the casket and see what grandma's got. And what grandma's got is on life. So yeah, it turns out that the ghost is actually an energy alien that was possessing grandma's body and then tried to possess Crusher. (laughs) 
I've had the Star Trek Wikia open the whole time, just catching up on these episodes as you guys talk about them. Literally translated from Japanese, Ronan means drifting person. Generally, however, it is used to refer to a samurai warrior who lacked a master. Braga made up the name before learning the meaning in Japanese. Mm-hmm. But Ronan, R-O-N-A-N, is a pre-existing name. Made it up. He just said, what syllables sound good? Ah, yes, masterless samurai. <laughs> exactly. Well, now I'm even more confused because Ronan is a name that would have fit just fine within the setting of Space Scotland. <laughs> and, like, he can't possess Crusher because, like, Picard just sort of goes to her house and it's like, hey, maybe don't. Can I see your weird boyfriend? So Crusher dashes off to the cemetery once she figures out what's going on. There's, like, a whole come away with me, no, I don't want to thing with Ronan and Crusher. And then Crusher puts the candle on the ground and manages to destroy the candle with her phaser because he's anchored to the candle and this somehow kills the ghost. Why is he anchored to the candle? Why does it matter whether or not the candle's lit? Does the candle not burn down? It's a really old candle. It's just not covered. Hmm. So then the ghost goes away and Crusher is bereft? She cries and then I think that's just- Because she got some real good dick from that ghost. She got some good dick in. I think it just goes from Crusher crying to credits. (laughs) 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 It does not because there's an entire conversation between Troy and Crusher afterwards and there's some mealy mouth thing about, well, maybe he was a ghost who was actually a plasma alien who may or may not have resulted in her death. But while they were together, he made her very happy- End of episode? I guess the moral of the story is energy beings have good dick. And you know, it might kill you, but what a way to go. I honestly think the ending of this episode would be stronger if it went from Crusher crying to credits. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, probably the clown episode sure does end in a striking fashion. Okay, so that was the episode where Crusher f***s a ghost. Yeah, and honestly, I gotta say, Cloud Orgy's still at my top for, like, the worst (laughs) slash weirdest. (laughs) And it, I mean, and I was so convinced that it was going to be the worst slash weirdest episode, and then I watched the number one on the list, and I had to reconsider some of my options. (laughs) Number one on the list is Threshold Voyager Season 2, Episode 15. Now... Based on previous entries on this list, who do you think wrote this episode? Was it A, Brandon Braga, B, Brian Fuller, or C, Joe Minoski? I don't... I don't know. I Probably the same one that wrote the one with, like, the emotionally abusive spaceship? Brian Fuller? Your answer is just Brian Fuller? Is that who wrote Alice? Then yes. Yeah, okay. It was, in fact, A, Brandon Braga. <laughs> okay. You can tell because there's more complete misunderstanding of how evolution works. Yeah, yep. Yep, yep, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, this one is um an interesting decision to make in terms of putting it on paper and then giving it to other people who then act it out. Those were a series of choices. So the background of this episode is that with the exception of some early weirdness in the original series, Warp 10 has always been considered an asymptotic barrier for speed. It is possible to get a ship to Warp 9.999. But never break warp 10. Warp 10 is considered infinitely fast. You are occupying every point in the universe simultaneously. Okay, so like, remind me, what is the warp kajiggery they do to go back in time to the 1980s and save the whales? They go to at least warp 9.95, I think, and then slingshot around a gravitational body. Okay, so the closer you get to warp 10, the weirder stuff gets. Yes. 
Early TOS has references to things like Warp 11 or Warp 13. The in-universe explanation for that is that at some point, once they figured out where the warp barrier was, they sort of rescaled so that 10 was like the upper barrier. So they just made 10 louder instead of going to 11. Yes. That's literally what happened. Yes. Why not? (laughs) Yeah. This episode opens with Tom, Harry, and Balana performing experiments to see if they can break the warp 10 barrier, which they refer to as the transwarp barrier. And then they actually have they have a breakthrough that was unfortunately facilitated by Neelix that should let them break the barrier. Who, by the way, I don't think you mentioned this. He's the cook. Yeah. Neelix starts off as like he's going to be their guide to the Delta Quadrant, but then they fly past everything Neelix knows and he's useless. So now he's the cook. Only everyone hates his cooking so that everyone decides he's like he just appoints himself the morale officer, which I don't think is a good idea because I know if I'm in the hallways on Voyager and I see Neelix coming at me, my day is immediately ruined. He does not have a pleasant <laughs> face and his costuming choices are wild. Neelix is the worst. Yeah, unfortunately, this discovery is facilitated by Neelix because the writers love Neelix and everything has to focus around Neelix at all times. They go to Janeway and say, hey, we want to do an experiment to break warp 10. And Janeway's like, well, you might die, but also this will be really sick. Do it. Because, like, you have this thing with Tom where they try to give this guy characterization. As far as I can tell, he's just horny pilot. But they try to be like, I want to be a special boy. Yeah. And, like, that's his motivation, I guess. This episode is one of the ones where, like, Tom has an inferiority complex, and that's why he is the way he is. I'm not sure it's a good explanation, but it is an explanation. They do the experiment, and then Tom successfully does break the barrier and achieve warp 10. He occupies every point in the universe simultaneously and only comes back to the ship because he notices they're looking for him. Why he couldn't stop off at Earth and say, hey, we're still alive, I don't know. But... (laughs) He gets back. Yeah, it gets into some weird quantum bullshit where they got really into the premise of Break Warp 10 and sort of forgot every other detail of the show at this point. So he gets back to the ship. Everyone congratulates him. Almost immediately, he gets sick and falls over. (laughs) Now, Mackenzie, you may be thinking at this point, oh, he must have some kind of warp sickness. He must just be like, I don't know, heaving or something. Or maybe he saw the time knife, so he's a little upset. I'm just looking at this picture on Don't look ahead on Memory Alpha, that's cheating. I'm reading! Yeah, so he does get <laughs> sick and and they do the thing where in like, you know, sci-fi and fantasy where when somebody gets sick and it's bad, they draw green lines on them. Yeah. <laughs> Tom is now mutating pretty rapidly. Like his entire body is just mutating. His tongue falls out. He stops being able to breathe air. Yeah, he loses the ability to breathe oxygen, and then he, like, vomits out his own tongue. Yeah, apparently he's evolving at an accelerated rate. Remember what we covered in Genesis about Brandon Braga doesn't know how evolution works. (laughs) It's a whole mystery about what is he turning into, what is he mutating into, and eventually the Dr. Hologram discovers that he is actually still evolving along the line of human progression. He's just doing it really fast. So eventually we'll stop being able to breathe air. We'll stop using tongues. All of our hair will fall out. And this happens independent of any external stimuli. So after a whole thing where they like discover a treatment that might fix him, but they don't get the chance to use it before Tom busts out of sickbay and escapes, Tom busts out of sickbay and escapes. He manages to capture Janeway, and then he takes a shuttle and takes off at warp 10 again. And then they're like, okay, well, we have to find our captain and Tom. We have have a lock on a swamp planet. 
<laughs> they finally catch up to the shuttle and they go down onto this jungle planet and they see these two giant salamanders. Like these big fleshy salamanders. And they've had babies. <laughs> they've had babies! They're like, well, here they are, I guess. Let's get them home. What is that? And there's a little pile of babies. <laughs> they just leave the babies. They made babies! They had these giant salamanders that they just sort of, like, pick up, I guess, and put on the shuttle. And the little salamander babies just sort of pop into the nearby swamp, and they're like, I guess that's fine. Let's leave that. Let's leave that <laughs> hyper-evolved human alone. <laughs> so, yeah, back on board Voyager, the doctor uses that radiation therapy thing to turn them back into people and not salamanders. And then Janeway puts Tom in for a commendation... Probably because of the Warp 10 thing, but possibly because as a lizard, Tom f***s like a champion. Who knows? <laughs> okay, okay. Like, there's a part where Tom is like, hey, I'm sorry I kind of mated with you. And her response is, who's to say I didn't initiate? <laughs> and, like, she's not necessarily saying that she would f*** Tom. Simply that whatever Janeway wants, Janeway gets. Yeah. Look, if we're lizards, we're f***ing. That's just how it is sometimes. Don't f*** with Janeway. Unless you're a lizard and then f*** with Janeway. <laughs> and have babies! How do they have babies that quick? And they're just like, we're just gonna leave them there on that planet. So, you know, is this a prime directive thing? Are those still human? We don't know for sure. They had lizard babies. This is widely considered the worst Star Trek episode. This is definitely the most reviled Star Trek episode of all time. This is maybe the only Star Trek episode to be completely stricken from the record because a later episode of Voyager claims that nobody has ever broken the transwarp barrier. Really? This episode won an Emmy for special effects. Okay, I can get that because he gets, like, real wild in his evolution stuff. Like, it's a weird, uncomfortable, unpleasant episode to watch, but man, I don't know if it's worse than the crew fails to negotiate with a clown, like, three times. Yeah, you can get an action figure of Lizard Tom. I don't know that I want an action figure of Lizard Tom. I don't know that either, but I know that you can get one. Is there an action figure of the clown? You know, I have to check. Let me check. No. I'm very disappointed that there's not an action figure of the clown, though. I feel like if there was an action figure of the clown, the clown would have to sit opposite your bed and just stare at you all night. <laughs> yeah, on my Star Trek server, we do actually have an emojo of the clown. That's great. We also have a, an emojo of Janeway saying, delete the wife. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that was, that was Threshold. That's Threshold happened, guys. <laughs> Threshold Day, the day the Threshold aired, is a yearly holiday in Star Trek fandom. Really? Yes. Like, Happy Threshold Day? Happy Threshold Day. Here have some lizards. <laughs> Why are we turning the lizards? What is with this show and lizards? We turn into lizards. Don't worry about it. Cats turn into lizards. Ran and Braga likes lizards. People turn into lizards? Ran and Braga likes lizards. <laughs> I, look, this would have made more sense if it had been a crab. <laughs> the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward crab. <laughs> it does! Why were there no crabs in either of those episodes? I ask you. <laughs> Nature loves a crab. <laughs> it's a very real phenomenon. Nature keeps making crabs. Why didn't this guy? <laughs> nope, it's lizards. If you go too fast, you turn into lizards. I don't. As a side note. I don't. Voyager left the Alpha Quadrant with, I believe, 
six shuttles. How many do you think they had by the time they got back to the Alpha Quadrant? Fourteen. Zero. Negative fifteen. Oh my god. Go on. (laughs) Shuttles keep getting destroyed in episodes, and it's never established how they're making new ones. (laughs) Well, they just replicate them. Voyager's on replicator rations. (laughs) They had to ration the replicator supplies. No, really? Yes, that is a whole flop. That's why Neelix is the cook. Because they have to use fresh food because they only have so much power to run the replicators. I assume they just got tired of the fact that the replicators are just stuck on fiesta wear. No, they literally, they do not have the base blocks necessary to run the replicators. They don't have the power to run the replicators. They have limited power and a lot of it has to go to the warp drive to get home. So they just, they conserve replicator use. So you're telling me that by the time Deep Space Nine and Voyager were both airing at the same time, they both agreed independently of each other that post-scarcity economies were troublesome. And so they solved it by frontier stuff and Deep Space Nine solved it by Ferengi capitalism and gold-pressed latinum. Yes, you can tell exactly when Gene Roddenberry died. <laughs> So yeah, I guess my thesis for this episode is, like when we were introducing Star Trek to Kyle, he was like, I'm not sure I'm smart enough for Star Trek. The Star Trek always seemed too intelligent to me. And then he started watching the episodes we showed him and he was like, this is Star Trek? So my lesson to you, audience, is if you haven't watched Star Trek and you think that you're not smart enough for Star Trek, uh, Star Trek is dumb and weird and horny. (laughs) And (laughs) it's a deeply bizarre show and it's not too smart for you. It's really not. (laughs) They take Spock's brain out. They take Spock's brain out. The whole brain. McCoy drives Spock around like a sweet RC car he got for Christmas. (laughs) In a weird little outfit. In a weird little jumpsuit. Star Trek's weird. Star Trek's weird. Star Trek's delightfully weird. I love it so much. It's an incredibly swingy experience. There's just so much of... Yeah, because I mean, you'll have like incredibly well-written episodes that people will talk about. You'll have like beautiful meditations on humanity, and then you'll have everybody turned into spiders and lizards and amphibians. Star Trek is a show about asking questions. Sometimes that question is, what if there was a really weird guy who showed up? There's an episode where there's an alien who talks entirely in memes, and that's one of the good ones. That's the one people talk about a lot, not just because of the memes. God, can you imagine if you knew that guy and you knew all the shit he was talking about? He'd be completely insufferable. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but anyway, there's just so much Star Trek. There's so much Star Trek that there is bound to be a Star Trek that you like. If you don't like original series, try TNG. If you don't like TNG, try DS9. If you don't like DS9, try Voyager. You probably won't like Voyager, so try one of the newer ones. There's just a lot of Star Trek, and I didn't even include any of the animated series episodes, which accidentally makes the Mankazin Wars a canon to Star Trek. The what? So there's this science fiction writer named Larry Niven, wrote Ringworld, also wrote a series of books called The Mankazin Wars, where humanity is, like, Earth and humanity are at war against, like, a great big empire of cat people called the Kazinti. Okay. The thing is, is that Larry Niven also wrote for Star Trek the Animated Series, and he included- Oh yeah, and they had a kitty cat lady. No, that's a different kind of cat lady. What? Yeah, she's a Cation. That's a different cat species. But hmm. uh, not only are the Cations written into Star Trek the Animated Series, but Larry Niven also wrote the Kazinti into Star Trek the Animated Series, which makes the man Kazin Wars part of the Star Trek timeline. Well, that's weird. So yeah. <laughs> I didn't even include any animated series episodes on this list because if I did, it would be all animated series episodes. 
I would also like to say that if you decide you don't like any of these Star Trek things, then just watch Galaxy Quest. It's kind of the same. Yeah, if you don't like any Star Trek, you'll probably enjoy Galaxy Quest. But also, there's just so much Star Trek, but there's probably a Star Trek you'll like. Star Trek's weird. Star Trek's deeply weird. I love it so much. Well, thank you for taking us on this trip, Kit. Let me just check the word count on my notes, because it's high. It's 4,000 words of notes. Also, send me those notes so I can put them on Patreon. Oh, yeah. I refuse. (laughs) I think that kind of does it for us. I think it's time for our final facts. Mac, what's your final fact? My final fact is, even if you don't actively watch Star Trek, it does make really good background noise. (laughs) Speaking from the experience of long conversations with my dad about Pokemon while in the back Seven of Nine was doing something. I mean, it is important to pay attention when Seven of Nine is doing something. Or somebody was yelling at Neelix. (laughs) Or... Spock was there. But me and my dad had many, like, intense conversations just about life in general while Star Trek played in the background. And so it's good background noise. Annie, what is your final fact? The king of the clown orgy wants to be topped. (laughs) (laughs) And I will never get over that. Kit, you let us hear. What is your final fact? Voltron shipping discourse can ultimately be traced back to amok time, so it's impossible to say whether anything is bad or good. That's fair. (laughs) I hope we have convinced you that... Let me just check my notes here. When you go too fast, you turn into lizards. (laughs) (laughs) You sure do. Don't forget that part. You just bone. Don't mess with Janeway is probably also our backup fact. Don't f*** with Janeway. She'll kill you. (laughs) Clown. Uh, So next time we're going to be pivoting. We're going to be doing another movie, but it's a very weird movie. This will be our Halloween episode I got to pick. It's literally getting released on Halloween. Don't worry about it. Yes, it is coming out on Halloween. Oh, dear. It's going to be great. Uh Uh-oh. We are going to be talking about more absolute trash. We're going to be talking about Von Helsing, and we'll actually be bringing on our friend Alexi, who is one of our co-players on Gem Jammer, because Alexi loves Van Helsing more than air, I think. So that should be very fun. Yes, we are talking about, no, not the character. We're just talking about the Von Helsing movie with the Gatling gun crossbow with the stakes on it. Yeah. I'm excited. The one with Hugh Jackman? I'm excited. It's a lot. It's so much. (laughs) So join us next time when we talk about that one. We don't have a fact lined up. I have a suggested fact. What do you got? Van Helsing is the Dark Universe crossover movie that Universal keeps failing to make. See, I had something in my head about like how it's basically what Hansel and Gretel witch hunters want it to be. That also works. But I don't know. We'll let you know when we get there exactly what our fact is going to be. But for right now, the fact is Von Helsing exists. (laughs) Boy, does it exist. It exists so much. (laughs) Annie's in a vulnerable state right now because Threshold happened. (laughs) That fucking clown. I'm just, I'm mostly mad at the clown still. (laughs) They failed to negotiate with a clown. It's just a clown. (laughs) It's an evil clown, but it's just a clown. Look, join us next time. (laughs) 
I will fight you comes out every five weeks. You can find us wherever you download podcasts. Our show is edited by Lucas Brown of The Math of You. You can find that at The Math of You Podcast on Twitter. Lucas, I think I did it wrong, but you know what? Just Google it. Don't fix that. (laughs) It's fine, Lucas. It's fine. Lucas does good work. We love him. He is our friend. You can find our stuff at Crooked Russian Cam. We are on Twitter at CRC Podcast. Our website is crookedrussiancam.horse or crookedrussiancam.gay. You can find information about our other shows as well as updates on dumb stuff we're doing on Patreon, where we pretty much just post posts just constantly. That is patreon.com slash the gem jam for a dollar a month. You can get early episodes of I Will Fight You as well as stuff from our other shows, including exclusive podcast at the $3 tier, where we have yelled about a lot of smut, honestly. (laughs) Honestly. And some visual novels and also some anime. We did yell about anime (laughs) recently. And oh, and also a lot of uh, like choose your own adventure games. Mac plays a lot of choose your own adventure games. You you wouldn't believe it, but she does. (laughs) Who would ever think? Can I plug a thing of mine? Yes, absolutely. Capital City Press, which is the in-house press of the Edmonton Public Library back in my hometown, has published volume one of their online anthology, and I am in it. Oh, neat. So if you go to capitalcitypress.ca, you will find my story contactless. It's only about 500 words. So yeah, I don't get paid anymore if you look at it. I just think people might like it. Check it out. Absolutely do that. Okay, join us next time when we talk about Van Helsing on Halloween itself. I'm very excited about that. (laughs) We definitely did that on purpose. It's not serendipitous or fortuitous at all. It is destiny is what it is. I'm lying. (laughs) Until next time, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And we have fought you. (laughs) 